from New York. This is Maria McFarry, and you're listening to Oral Max Facts. Here with me today is my partner, Dr. Reedy Patel. Hello from Cincinnati. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, Oral Max Facts aims to bring you the most evidence-based literature and expert interviews made just for medical professionals, especially oral and maxillofacial surgeons. We are thankful for your support. Um, our goal with our non-CE episode is to give you guys a quick review on relevant topics for everyday practice and tips for board preparation. Local anesthetics, they're safe, right? The perception of local anesthetics being safe could prove wrong sometimes if you forget your basics. So local anesthetics are probably one of the most commonly used drugs in surgery, medicine, and dentistry, which is why this talk is relevant to a lot of dental and medical professionals. Just a friendly advice, as a part of transition to adult learning from student learning, try to pick five points to fill your current knowledge gaps in this topic. Yes, especially for board points, we will give you special hints. Our goal is to make this talk extremely relevant for boards. For that, we do a lot of research and incorporate a lot of repeating points that we see in the questions in our talks. We're going to dive into our talk with the highlights of art of local anesthetic selection and then cover six major points that we all need to know and keep on reviewing about local anesthetics. We're going to talk about pharmacology of local anesthetics. For instance, do we know which local anesthetic has the slowest onset? Then we're going to talk about pharmacology of vasoconstrictors talk about the second most vasoconstrictor outside of epinephrine, and we're going to review neurophysiology. We're going to discuss a specific local anesthetic and their maximum recommended dosage. And last two points are reviewing signs and symptoms of drug toxicity and treatment. And last but not least, discuss local anesthesia for patients with specific systematic conditions. Okay, so Miriam, yesterday I had a 50-year-old male refer to me for extraction of all remaining teeth for full-arch maxillary and mandibular dentures. Um, this gentleman's past medical history was significant for coronary artery disease, um, status post bypass surgery, hyperlipidemia, and high blood pressure. His medications included aspirin, lisinopril, hydrochlorothiazide, and simvastatin. He was not allergic to any medications, and he smokes two cigarettes a day and drinks alcohol socially. He weighs about 90 kilogram. His BMI is 30. His blood pressure is 189 over 90. His heart rate is 88, respiratory rate of 14, and he saturates at 98% on room air. On further asking, he claims that he can walk around the house at 2 miles per hour and avoid stairs if he can because he gets short of breath. On exam, he has a total of 20 carious non-restorable teeth left on both maxilla and mandible. He denies any chest pain at rest or on exertion, although he doesn't really exercise. He would prefer to get all his teeth out in one appointment so he can get his dentures quickly. So what is your choice of local anesthetic in this patient? Let me give you four options here. A 2% lidocaine with 1 to 100,000 epinephrine, 3% mepivacaine without epinephrine, 0.5% bupivacaine with 1 to 200,000 epinephrine, or 4% septicaine with 1 to 100,000 epinephrine. I have an answer in mind, but let's come back to it at the end of the talk. For some fun facts that you can whip out in the pate, know that first local anesthetic used was cocaine in 1880s. It wasn't until World War II when Lofgren first developed the most revolutionary drug in local anesthetics world, which is, you guessed it, lidocaine. Do you ever wonder what is in a local anesthetic vial? Yeah, let's, uh, let's review that first. The main components of a local anesthetic drug vial are an anesthetic drug, such as lidocaine, mepivacaine, or whatever it is, a vasoconstrictor, such as epinephrine, 
a preservative such as methylparaben, a fungicide such as sodium metabisulfite, and water. Cool. What is the chemical structure of a local anesthetic and why is it important? So chemically speaking, the basic structure of a local anesthetic molecule consists of three parts. Lipophilic group, an intermediate bond, and a hypophilic group. Reedy, can you break this down a little bit further? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the lipophilic group is an aromatic group, usually an unsaturated benzene ring. The intermediate bond is a hydrocarbon connecting chain, which is what determines the local anesthetic as an ester or an amide. And finally, the hydrophilic group is a tertiary amine. The chemical structure is important because essentially it helps us understand how and why this drug works. Some of you may not like chemistry and understand that, so we promise to not go into too much boring detail. Okay. The three most important properties of local anesthetics are potency, duration of action, and time of onset. The chemical structure of local anesthetic directly correlates with these properties. So let's explore these three a little bit further. The aromatic ring gives local anesthetics a lipophilic character, so it could cross a phospholipid nerve membrane. Greater lipid solubility means increased potency due to rapid diffusion through cell membrane. Potency is directly related to lipid solubility because 90% of a nerve cell membrane is composed of lipid. Think of potency as a comparative term that helps us estimate how much of each drug is needed to have the same effect. For example, Lidocaine is marketed at 2%, while bupivacaine marketed at 0.5%. Why? Because bupivacaine is more potent than lidocaine. Okay, so that was lipophilic character for phospholipid nerve membrane crossing. Okay, on to the tertiary amine group, which is a hydrophilic group. So this tertiary amine acts as an on and off switch for the drug allowing the local anesthetic to exist in either a lipid-soluble form or a water-soluble form. Really, what do you mean by on and off switch? That's a good question. So injectable local anesthetics are weak bases with a pKa range of 7.7 to 8.9. Local anesthetics exist in ionized and non-ionized forms, the proportions of which vary with the pH of the environment. It is the non-ionized form that is responsible for diffusing across the membranes and blocking sodium channels, and therefore preventing action potential. Hence, anesthetics with a greater amount of non-ionized forms have a faster onset of action. Do you ever wonder, when you see a patient in an emergency room with infection, why are they not getting numb? So talking about faster onset of action, sometimes the lidocaine with its current pH or pKa is not able to penetrate the tissue and can't have the same onset of action. In that situation, you may consider adding another agent called sodium bicarbonate to your local anesthetic. Sodium bicarbonate will increase the pH and decrease the acidity, and that will help you with the onset of action. But one must be careful because too much alkalinization can cause local anesthetic molecule to precipitate from solution. So in summary, the time of onset is determined by dissociation constant, aka pKa. Correct. The lower the dissociation constant, the faster the onset. For example, pKa of lidocaine is 7.8 and pKa of bupivacaine is 8.1. This explains why lidocaine has a faster onset of action than bupivacaine. The last property that you must know about is the duration of action. The duration of action is associated with protein binding. For example, bupivacaine is 95% protein bound. That explains why it is longer acting than lidocaine, which is only 65% protein bound. Okay, so board question. Which of the following local anesthetic agents has the slowest onset of action? 1. Articane 2. Bupivacaine 
3. Lidocaine or 4. Mepivacaine? What's the answer? Mepivacaine, if you have been listening, is the answer. But why? Is it because bupivacaine has a higher lipid solubility, higher protein bound? Nope. It's because the onset is determined by pKa and bupivacaine has a greater degree of ionization at physiological pH, which means less ionized, which means slower onset. Okay? Okay, so let's move on to metabolism and excretion. Essentially, what differentiates the two classes of local anesthetics is their metabolism. Let's start with ester local anesthetics. Some of the examples of esters include benzocaine, cocaine, propoxicaine, tetracaine. The last prominent example is procaine, which was most popularly known as novocaine back in the day. Um, the only ester local anesthetic that you may use in dentistry is benzocaine, which is uh, formulated as a, a topical anesthetic. Esters are metabolized primarily by plasma esterases, which produces para-aminobenzoic acid as a byproduct. The most common reason why novocaine is no longer in use because of this allergic reaction to susceptible patients. A little side note here for those of us who also do anesthesia or deep sedation in our practices, these are the same pseudocholine esterases that metabolize succinylcholine. So think about this. What happens if a patient is missing plasma pseudocholine esterase? As it turns out, some patients have abnormal level of pseudocholine esterase due to either a genetic mutation or an altered physiological state. For example, pseudocholine esterase level decreases with advanced liver disease and it decreases by 75% of its normal level during pregnancy and even during postpartum period. However, the clinical significance of altered pseudocholinesterase level depends on its level of catalytic activity. So pseudocholinesterase deficiency or abnormally low level would increase the risk of ester local anesthetic toxicity or metabolism of succinylcholine, as Reedy pointed out. It is also important to note that methylparaben is a preservative used in amide local anesthetic solutions, which is structurally similar to paraminobenzoic acid, and it could elicit allergic reactions in susceptible patients. Well, thankfully, methylparaben is no longer in use today in dental cartridges. But do keep in mind that methylparaben is still used as a preservative in multi-dose vials, which are available in emergency rooms and operating rooms. That is all for esters, my friends. Let's talk about amides now. Miriam, what are the amide local anesthetics and how are they metabolized? The most commonly used amide local anesthetics are articaine, bupivacaine, lidocaine, mepivacaine, perlocaine, and etinocaine, all the canes, but no candy cane. Most local anesthetics in use today are amide, with lidocaine being the most popular one. What really differentiates from ester is that amides are being metabolized by the liver, and the enzyme that does the work, the enzyme that does the job, is microsomal P450 enzyme. Something to keep in mind when treating patients with compromised liver function or the patients who are polypharmacy and they're taking a lot of medication that might interfere with this enzyme. Those are way too many names to remember. Uh, Miriam, is there an easy way to tell the difference between all these candy canes? I mean, uh, between ester and amide anesthetics? Uh, yes, there is an easy rule that will help you keep in line all these different names, as I'm sure many of you have heard it during dental school. For amides, the generic name has an I before the cane. This trick will only work with the generic name, and it will not work with the commercial or the trade name that, just to confuse you, also have cane sometimes in them. Okay? So, our trick, for instance, lidocaine, mepivacaine, parlocaine, bupivacaine, ropivacaine, all contain an I before the cane. Esters, such as Procaine, chloroprocaine, 
and tetracaine do not contain an I before the cane. Okay, got it. So no I before the cane and esters. And how are these local anesthetics excreted by the body? Both local anesthetics are excreted by the kidneys, so one must be careful with dosage in patients with impaired renal functions. Okay, so that is all the pharmacokinetics we will mention here. Why? Because we want to keep you awake for the whole lecture. You're welcome. If you want to learn more because you're a true nerd like I am, check out the book by Stanley Malmed called Handbook of Local Anesthesia. Okay, let's check ourselves by another board question. Which of the following agents has the shortest half-life? Is it A. Articane? B. Bupivacaine? C. Lidocaine? Or D. Mepivacaine? Drumroll. So the answer is Articane. Ready? Thanks for asking this question putting me on the spot. The molecular structure of articaine contains an ester side chain that is actually rapidly inactivated by hydrolysis. The, the half-life for articaine is about 27 minutes, lidocaine 96 minutes, bupivacaine 162 minutes, more than two hours, and mepivacaine 114 minutes, right under two hours. Um, let's also keep in mind that all local anesthetics with the exception of cocaine, are vasodilators. This vasodilation leads to a fast absorption and a shorter duration of action. So, vasoconstrictors are added to local anesthetics to counteract this action. Yes, action against reaction. So, let's quickly review the adrenergic system. It's comprised of three main receptors. This thing's going to keep coming up. Beta-1 increases heart rate, contractility, and conduction. Beta 2, vasodilation and relaxation of trachea and bronchioles. Alpha is the vasoconstriction of the peripheral arterioles and veins. The two most common vasoconstrictors used in dental anesthetic solutions are, as you guys already know, epinephrine, and the one that you may not know is levonorgestrel. Local anesthetics containing norepinephrine are no longer manufactured in the, in the United States. Why? Because norepinephrine is beta-1 selective, and you may know what that could do, right? It could lead to rebound bradycardia. You may be wondering how do these catecholamines precisely help local anesthetics? Let us tell you about that. Yeah, you may not want to know, but you kind of, it's good to know. <laughs> Epinephrine acts directly on alpha and beta adrenergic receptors and induces vasoconstriction. As a result, four things will happen. You will see delay in absorption of local anesthetic, increase in duration of action at the site of injection, increase depth of anesthesia, and of course, hemostasis of the surgical wound. In other words, epinephrine decreases the peak blood levels of local anesthetics and increases the safe dose that you can administer. And this will become more apparent when we talk about the maximum recommended dosages of each local anesthetic with and without epinephrine. The dilution of epinephrine is commonly referred to as a ratio. A concentration of 1 to 1000 means that there is 1 gram of solute in 1000 milliliter of solution or one milligram per milliliter. So the most common concentrations we encounter is one in 100,000, which is basically 0.01 milligram per milliliter, or one in 50,000, which is 0.02 milligram per milliliter. And lastly is one in 200,000, which is 0.005 milligram per milliliter, or 5 microgram per milliliter. Okay, and one question that we always get faced with is, what is the maximum dosage of epinephrine that we can give? And the correct answer is the least concentrated solution that produces effective pain control. Most practitioners still follow the max dose of 0.2 milligram per appointment, which comes about 11 dental carpules. Levonorgestrel, on the other hand, is alpha-selective with some beta activity. 
so it is one-sixth as effective as epinephrine. Therefore, it is used as a higher concentration at 1 to 20,000. The maximum dose of levonorgestrel is 1 milligram. Yes, and we definitely added this because of its relevance regarding the board. It's worth remembering this agent. So let's talk about how vasoconstrictors are metabolized. Most of the action is terminated by diffusion or reuptake by adrenergic nerves. Vasoconstrictors that we use are similar in structure to endogenous catecholamines, and therefore the action of remaining vasoconstrictor is terminated by the enzyme catechol-O-methyltransferase and monoamine oxidase. Remember that COMT is inhibited by cocaine and amphetamine, so patients who are using these drugs actively are at higher risk of increased blood levels of epinephrine, and therefore its adverse reactions. Vasoconstrictors are unstable in local solution, which is why their shelf life is improved by adding antioxidants such as sodium metabisulfite or sodium bisulfite to local anesthetics. There are patients who may report sulfite allergy, in which case a plain local anesthetic solution should be used. That's a really good point. So when talking about catecholamines, it is important to consider the possible toxic reaction and side effects. One of the known side effects is an increased heart rate. The 1954 AHA guideline limited the use of epinephrine to only 0.2 mg per appointment. This guideline has not been updated since its creation, and there is no consensus on how much epinephrine is safe in high-risk patients. In patients with significant cardiovascular disease, a dose of 40 microgram, approximately two carpules containing epinephrine of 1 to 100,000, is most frequently cited dose limitation for epinephrine. Let me clarify that this guideline more accurately reflects 30-minute time periods and not appointments. So periodic patient assessment is more reasonable suggestion than the maximal dose. If for any reason the medical status of a patient is in question, we should stop and recess the vital sign within 5 minutes after administrating every carpule. And if the patient is a staple, additional dosage may be administered followed by a similar pattern of reassessment. Let's keep in mind that epinephrine may induce ventricular dysarrhythmias or PVCs. So when should we be concerned? Here's a simple rule to remember. Six PVCs in a minute or when it's multifocal. The treatment for ventricular dysarrhythmias is plain IV lidocaine, which is a class 1B antiarrhythmic. Additionally, there has also been reports of systemic toxicity with patients taking MAO inhibitors or tricyclic antidepressants or phenothiazins. Let's change the gear a little now and dive into the neurophysiology. Yes, and before we go there, I want to mention that treatment for PVCs as lidocaine, as Reedy mentioned, has definitely come up in board questions. How does the local anesthetic block a sensory nerve? We'll get to that. How about we first review the peripheral nerve anatomy and conduction physiology a little bit? So exciting. So, so exciting. A typical peripheral nerve consists of several axon bundles or fascicles. Each axon has its own connective tissue covering called the endoneurium. Each fascicle of many axons is encased by a second connective tissue layer called perineurium and the entire nerve is wrapped in a loose outer sheath called the epineurium. Yes, and as we recall, and pull out those good old files of basic physiology from dental school days, the voltage difference of a membrane is minus 60 to 90 millivolts and is maintained by ATP-dependent sodium-potassium pump. The sodiums are outsies and potassiums are being kept hostage inside. Okay, so other board-related details are nerve fiber classifications. Yes, we do not want to board you, but we want you to ace that board exam. Nerve fibers can be classified according to fiber diameter, presence or absence of myelin, and function. So let's get into some details. The larger the diameter, the more rapid the nerve conduction. Myelin sheet increases the conduction velocity through the nodes of Ranmire. 
Remember from our preclinical courses, the nodes of RAN wire have higher concentration of sodium channel. And lastly, local anesthetic works mostly on small pain fibers. And what are those fibers called? Small myelinated A delta fibers and small non-myelinated C fibers. Yes, I live in a big apple and what you're hearing is ambulance because I also live right across from the hospital. Maryam, now you can explain the mechanism of action of local anesthetics on nerve membranes. Local anesthetics work predominantly by displacing calcium ions, calcium ions from the voltage-gated sodium channels which then permits local anesthetic molecule to bind to its receptor site which results into blockage of a sodium channel. And a decrease in sodium conductance depresses the rate of electrical depolarization and as a result the threshold potential cannot be reached. Hence there is no action potential and voila you got yourself a blockage. Now we will review different local anesthetics in use today. Prolocaine and tetracanes are the only esters we will talk about for board relevance. Just a side note, the maximum rec recommended dosages differs from text to text. So what we have presented here is the most common maximum recommended dosages that you will see in any oral maxillofacial surgery literature. Also, there's no easy way to remember the maximum recommended dose. Most of them are around 6 to 7 milligram per kilogram, with the exception of bupivacaine. You just have to memorize them. But we will hint a few things here and there to make things a little bit easier. Okay, so let's start with procaine, which is also known as infamous novocaine. It's a crap drug, no longer in use due to delayed onset and reported allergies. However, here's a board answer. When you have an uninverted intraarterial injection, procaine is the drug of choice due to its vasodilating properties, which breaks the arteriospasm. Practically speaking, you may end up using just plain lidocaine in your office since we don't stock novocaine anymore. Okay, tell us about tetracaine. Tetracaine is used as a topical spray in dentistry. For the medicine folks out there, it is also the most commonly used local anesthetic for spinal anesthesia in children. Its maximum recommended dose is 0.2 to 0.3 milligram per kilogram. Thank you, Miriam. On to amides now. In the order of most to least milligram per kilogram are lidocaine with epinephrine, which is the same dose for articaine, followed by mepivacaine. Prolocaine, and then the last one is bupivacaine. Let's start with lidocaine. Uh, lidocaine is the gold standard. It is safe in children and has a quick onset time. Max recommended dose is 7 mg per kilogram with epinephrine, or 4.4 mg per kilogram without the epinephrine. Here is a prime example of what we mentioned earlier and how epinephrine decreases the peak blood level of local anesthetic and increases the safe dose that one can administer. I know there are some discrepancy about dental carpules containing 1.7 milliliter versus 1.8 milliliters. For our purposes, the dental carpules contain 1.7 milliliter of solution in a carpule. One dental carpule of 2% lidocaine contains 34 milligram of lidocaine. Safe dosage for a 70 kilogram, otherwise healthy adult, is 49 uh, is 490 milligram or 14 carpules. Okay, articaine, also known as septicaine, which um, now most of us are eager to get to when lidocaine doesn't seem to work quick enough. Its maximum recommended dose, similar to lidocaine with epinephrine is 7 mg per kilogram. Articaine has improved tissue penetration and according to a study comparing articaine to lidocaine and mepivacaine, the extent of anesthesia achieved by 4% articaine was statistically more significant than 2% lidocaine and 2% mepivacaine. However, it may not be ideal for inferior alveolar nerve block 
due to the some reported paresthesia with inferior alveolar nerve block. We also have to remember that articaine has an ester part, but it's still mostly metabolized by liver. There is an increased risk of methemoglobinemia with articaine. Let's talk about mepivacaine, which is also known as carbocaine. Mepivacaine is sulfide-free because there's no vasoconstricted added, and its max dose is 6.6 mg per kilogram. It is safe to use for patients with increased cardiovascular risk because it doesn't have that epinephrine. And arguably, you could use it if a patient has sulfite allergy. Max recommended dosage for pyrlocaine is 6 mg per kilogram. Similar to articaine, there's an increased risk of methemoglobinemia because pyrlocaine metabolites include otylodine derivatives, which can accumulate after larger doses more than 10 mg per kilogram, resulting in conversion of hemoglobin to methemoglobin. The treatment is methylene blue. Easy to remember because they both start with meth. And do remember this because this shows up to the board question all the time. The maximum recommended dose of 0.5% bupivacaine with 1 to 200,000 epinephrine is 1.3 mg per kilogram. It has a poor subperiosteal infiltration and a longer time of onset. But the reason we like bupivacaine is because of its longer duration of action. And do you remember what duration of action was associated with? Protein bound, being able to bind to protein. It is important to know that bupivacaine is associated with cardiotoxicity, especially with epidural. So watch for its meas and also it is not safe for children. Good thing we don't give epidural to people. There's like more things to remember. <laughs> anyway. For completeness sake here, we will mention Expirel. It is a new product with extended release bupivacaine as a liposomal drug delivery technology available in the market today. Um, the claims made by the company is that it is used in oral surgery with reported reduction in pain by 30%. 72 hours post-operatively. Uh, whether it actually does that or not, we don't have enough data on that yet. A side note, another anesthetic you may find in your readings or practice is robivacaine, an L-enantromer of bupivacaine. If you only know how happy I am that I only said that in one take, you would appreciate this moment. It is similar to bupivacaine with respect to onset and duration, but when dosed equally, Ropivacaine has a larger margin of safety with reduced risk of cardiac and neurological toxicities, toxicities compared with bupivacaine. It is also not available as a dental carpule, but comes in a while. There are quite a few topical agents that are also available in market. We will only mention three of them because they're commonly used. LET. LET is um, a mixture of 4% lidocaine, 0.1% epinephrine, and 0.5% tetracaine. It is excellent and safe topical anesthetic agent, most commonly used in emergency room, especially pediatric ED for laceration repair. Um, it requires an occlusive dressing of 15 to 30 minutes on the wound before you can inject. Alma cream. Amla is a eutectic mixture of 2.5% lidocaine and 2.5% prelocaine. It is used on children before injections or starting an IV. Um, it also requires an occlusive dressing on the skin for approximately 40 to 60 minutes. So it's a longer time of onset. It does have some risk of methemoglobinemia due to prolocaine in there. Liposomal lidocaine. LMX um, is a relatively new proprietary mixture of 4% liposomal lidocaine. It has a shorter time of onset of approximately 30 minutes when compared to EMLA. Nice. Sounds like something we all can use in our waiting room area. Just have everybody just like put it on and wait for, <laughs> wait for the IV. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. adults could be also scared of needle and we don't judge you. This is a safe zone. I actually know of... I know surgeons who are scared of needle. Just like any other drug, just like any other drug, there's a toxicity associated with local anesthetic. Remember the importance of weight-based dosing and modification to dosing in a medically compromised patient. 
Based on a recent review article, the incidence of local anesthetic systemic toxicity is reported at 0.03%, with seizure being the most common presenting feature. Toxicity is often the result of intravenous or intraarterial injection or overdose, so always remember to aspirate while injecting, especially the dental students out there, okay? The associated signs and symptoms may vary among local anesthetics. Local anesthetic can easily cross the blood-brain barrier, even at doses as low as 0.5 microgram per milliliter. Hence, central nervous system is more sensitive to the effects of local anesthetic than the cardiac system. Initially, local anesthetic may cause depression of central nervous system, and some of the initial central nervous system symptoms are tinnitus, blurred vision, dizziness, tongue paresthesia, and circumoral numbness. So if your patient says, I'm numb around my mouth, and you're in your anesthesia rotation and just give a spinal, or you, know, you only injected one side of the mouth, you may want to be concerned. At higher doses, the inhibitory pathways are blocked, resulting in CNS excitation. What does this look like clinically? Patients are nervous, they're agitated, they're restless, they started having muscle twitching, leading to a tonic-clonic seizures. Bad signs. These are still early signs and symptoms. Then you get advanced to CNS depression with slurred speech, drowsiness, unconsciousness, and unfortunately, finally, respiratory arrest. Hopefully, none of us are ever in that situation. But what is the treatment reading? In any case, you should administer supplemental oxygen and assist ventilation, as indicated, to prevent hypoxemia and hypercarbia. The treatment, the drug of choice, is benzodiazepine. Midazolam, lorazepam, or diazepam are generally the first line of treatment to terminate seizures. Can we use propofol reading? That's a good question. Propofol is easily available in our offices. But in a patient with systemic toxicity from local anesthetic, propofol should not be used or, or it should be used with caution because it can compromise cardiac function. Okay, okay. So cardiovascular symptoms are late complications. Local anesthetics have a dose-dependent negative inotropic effect, leading to a prolonged PR interval and widened QRS complex, and even sinus bradycardia or, or cardiac arrest. What is the treatment if you see cardiovascular complications? So, most commonly kept drug in the operating room, lipid emulsion therapy, which is marketed under the trademark name of intralipid, is thought to function as a lipid sink. It basically extracts hydrophobic drugs such as bupivacaine from cardiac tissue. American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine recommends an initial bolus of 1.5 mg per kilogram of 20% intravenous intralipid, followed by an infusion of 0.25 milliliter per kilogram per minute, and it should be continued for 10 minutes even after hemodynamic stabilization. After all said and done, prevention is the best medicine. Really, tell us some of the precaution we can take to prevent systemic toxicity. Okay, remember three easy steps, okay? One, administer the smallest possible dose to achieve desired anesthetic effect. Two, always aspirate before injecting. I cannot emphasize this more. And three, use epinephrine wisely to your advantage, unless, of course, it's if it's contraindicated. There are some additional precautions you have to take for some systemic conditions that we will look at closely here. Let's start with diabetes. The key is to find out if the patient is well-controlled or not. Studies have shown that the amounts of epinephrine contained in 1 to 3 cartridges of local anesthetic may be enough to significantly increase the risk of complications such as ketoacidosis or hyperglycemia in patients with uncontrolled diabetes. But patients with controlled diabetes are, on the other hand, very safe. They can generally receive vasoconstrictor containing anesthetics without any special precautions. I bet you never thought about that one before, did you? Into cardiovascular diseases, we start with hypertension. 
Hypertension, um, although there are concerns with vasoconstrictors and increase in blood pressure, many studies have shown that the use of 1 to 2 cartridges of 2% lidocaine with 1 to 100,000 epinephrine is of little significance in most patients with hypertension. In fact, vasoconstrictors may improve the level of anesthesia and lower the risk of endogenous catecholamine release that may result from inadequate pain control. However, for patients with advanced disease, special precautions should be taken. Elective treatment should be avoided when patient's blood pressure is greater than or equal to 180 over 110, which is a stage 3 hypertension. The studies have not shown any adverse reactions in patients with systolic pressure of less than 180 in elective surgeries. The second group of patients we should avoid elective treatments in are those who have hypertensive symptoms, such as occipital headache, failing vision, ringing in their ear, dizziness, weakness, and tingling of the hands and feet. Don't just chase the number and actually ask some follow-up questions. If emergency treatment is necessary, vasoconstrictor amount should be limited to one or two car fields of one to 100,000 solution. What about ischemic heart disease such as angina pectoris or myocardial infarction? In the presence of ischemic heart disease, elective treatment is counterindicated if patient has unstable angina, recent myocardial infarction, in less than six months, and recent cabbage in less than three months. However, if you do need to do an emergency surgery on these patients, treatment should be aimed at just elim eliminating their pain. Epinephrine dosages should be limited to, again, one to two cartridges of one to 100,000 dilution. Similarly, in patients with stable angina, vasoconstrictors should be limited to one to two cartridges. What about cardiac arrhythmia already? It is wise to obtain medical consultation in patients with an existing arrhythmia or conditions that may predispose to an arrhythmia. Vasoconstrictors are contraindicated in patients with severe arrhythmias, patients with an arrhythmia refractory to treatment. Okay, so now let's talk about congestive heart failure. For congestive heart failure, routine treatment is acceptable if it is well controlled. Although vasoconstrictor dosages should be limited to safe amounts of 1-2 to two cartridges whenever in question. Some medications prescribed for the management of congestive heart failure have potential interactions with vasoconstrictors. For example, digaxin prescribed to increase the heart rate contractile force has a narrow therapeutic index and may, and may lead to a cardiac arrhythmia when used concurrently with vasoconstrictors. In patients taking nitroglycerin and other vasodilators, on the other hand, the diminished effects of vasoconstrictors can shorten the anesthetic's duration of action. So now that we are done with the cardiac system, let's talk about pregnancy. Pregnancy is a special group of people, and I know every time a pregnant patient comes in, you're always in question of, should I or should I not do the treatment, or should I or should I not use the epinephrine? I know back in my institution during residency, we would always get this pre-type letter from OB-GYN saying, avoid vasoconstrictors. Um, however, what we're going to say here is completely opposite. Um, lidocaine and prilocaine are category B drugs. Remember that. Those are the safe ones to use, okay? On the other hand, mepivacaine, articaine, and bupivacaine are category C drugs for pregnancy. According to ADA, local anesthetics with epinephrine may be used safely in pregnancy. Both local anesthetic and vasoconstrictors can cross the placenta, but subtoxic thresholds have not shown to cause fetal abnormalities. Having said that, pregnant patients should avoid elective treatment during the first trimester of organogenesis. Excellent. Now into managing patients with thyroid disease, which is a large group of our populations these days. The use of epinephrine or vasoconstrictors in local anesthetics should be avoided or at least minimized to one to two cartridges if the thyroid disease is untreated or if it's poorly controlled hyperthyroid patient. Hypertension and cardiac abnormalities, especially dysarrhythmias, are common in the presence of excessive thyroid hormones. Renal disease. 
Amides, as you remember, are excreted by kidneys. So if the patient has renal disease, they may not be cleared as quickly. The total anesthetic dosage may need to be reduced or the interval of time between subsequent injections may need to be extended. And this is not a rule by any means as long as the total local anesthetic dosages is kept to a safe minimum dose. Excellent. And next into the liver disease, which also where a lot of action happens with medications and lidocaines. Yeah, correct. So amides are metabolized by liver. The macrosomal P450, as we mentioned earlier, you may see a large group of patients in your practice with hepatitis. Hepatitis is pretty commonly seen. If the patient with hepatitis has recovered completely, then you do not need to make any modifications to your local anesthetic dosages. However, if patients with chronic active hepatitis or a carrier status of hepatitis must be medically evaluated for impaired liver function. Local anesthetics may be used in these patients, but it is recommended that the dose be kept to minimum. In patients with more advanced cirrhotic disease, metabolism of local anesthetics may be significantly slowed down, leading to increased plasma levels and greater risk of toxicity reaction, as you can imagine. In these patients, if you want to achieve the best protocol, start with a rapid onset anesthetic such as lidocaine or mepivacaine, and then inject a long-acting anesthetic like bupivacaine to limit the total anesthetic dosage that you may have to um, give in order to achieve adequate pain control. And that is the art of local anesthetic selection. Absolutely. One drug that commonly interferes with metabolism of drugs by liver enzymes is cimetidine, a.k.a. tagamet. One of the board examiner's favorite drug interactions is the interaction between somatidine and local anesthetic. So a lot of patients who, are, who, who have GERDs are on somatidine. However, the probability of somatidine and therapeutic doses of local anesthetic interacting to produce a toxic level of local anesthetic in a bloodstream is unlikely and in fact unreported. Other histamine H2 receptor antagonist drugs such as ranitidine or Zantac or famotidine or Pepsid don't share cimetidine's metabolic inhibition of liver enzymes and therefore won't cause this potential interaction with local anesthetics. Now that you're familiar with major complications and local dosages, let's go back to our case, shall we? Yes. I'll, I'll repeat it. A 50-year-old male referred for extraction of all remaining teeth for full arch maxillary mandibular dentures. Past medical history is significant for coronary artery disease, status post-bypass surgery, hyperlipidemia, and high blood pressure. He takes aspirin, lisinopril, hydrochlorothiazide, and simvastatin. He is not allergic to any medications, and he smokes two cigarettes a day drinks alcohol socially. He weighs 90 kg and has a BMI of 30. His blood pressure is 189 over 90, heart rate is 88, respiratory rate of 14, and oxygen saturation of 98% on room air. He claims that he can walk around the house at 2 miles per hour and he avoids stairs if he can because he gets short of breath. On his exam, he has a pointy carious non-assorable teeth left on both maxilla and mandible. He denies any chest pain at rest or on exertion, although he doesn't really exercise, he says. He would prefer to get all his teeth out in one appointment so he can get his dentures quickly. What is your choice of local anesthetic in this patient? And I'll repeat the choices. Is it A, 2% lidocaine with 1 to 100,000 epinephrine? B, 3% plain mepivacaine, C, 0.5% bupivacaine with 1 to 200,000 epinephrine, or D, 4% septicaine with 1 to 100,000 epinephrine. So we tricked you. There is no right or wrong answer. But given the patient's poor tolerance for activity and cardiac abnormalities, I would start with a plain 3% mepivacaine. And if needed, I will supplement it with 2% lidocaine 
with 1 in 100,000 epinephrine, limited to only two carpials. After monitoring the blood pressure, if I, need, if I feel like I still need to give more local anesthetic, I will still choose lidocaine. I will keep monitoring the blood pressure and administer more lidocaine if blood, blood pressure allows. If not, I would then stick with the plain mepivacaine and I will try to avoid bupivacaine because as, as you may remember, it has a higher risk of cardiac toxicity. All right. Okay. A lot of information, I know. Uh, let's quickly review five key points to take away from today's podcast. One is that amides and esters are two types of local anesthetics with amides being the more common one in use today. Most allergic reaction in amide local anesthetics with vasoconstrictors is from metabisulfite, while the allergic reaction from ester local anesthetic is from paraaminobenzoic acid. Two, the three important properties to remember about local anesthetics are potency for lipid solubility, time of onset is determined by pKa, and the duration of action is determined by protein binding. Amide local anesthetics work by blocking open gated sodium channels on nerve membrane and are metabolized by liver and excreted by kidneys. 4. Weight-based dosing. The maximum recommended dosages for lidocaine with epinephrine is 7 mg per kilogram, plain mopivacaine is 6.6 mg per kilogram, and bupivacaine with epinephrine is 1.3 mg per kilogram. 5. Bupivacaine is associated with cardiotoxicity, and pyrlocaine and articaine are associated with methemoglobinemia. Okay, that is all things anesthetic. Thank you for listening to our podcast. As you guys know, it takes a lot of work to put this together, so we want to make sure that we are bringing you topics that are of interest to you. So please follow us on Instagram or on Facebook and our page at Facts. that is O-R-A-L-M-A-X-F-A-X, or slide into our DMs and comment on our recent post. Yes, please. I love to make new friends. Also, if you want the references used in this talk, send us a message with your email and we will be happy to send them to you. You want it? You got it. Until next time, goodbye! Bye. But why do we need to know the pH? Because <laughs> this is part of the changes. Uh, so, um, the cha- so the pH, because it's actually, it's a side of the lemon juice. Um, <laughs>